We are in a series uh, this summer called Because You Asked. Um, we asked the congregation a couple of months ago to send in questions to the pastoral team to answer some questions that uh, were on your mind and on your heart. We were going through First and Second Peter when these questions were thrown at us, and you could see some of the questions had to do with that book. Um, we do expository preaching here primarily. Um, we are uh, in this series, but come September, we are going to be looking at um, the Spirit-Empowered Mission, um, uh, the book of Acts. We're calling it the Spirit-Empowered Mission. Yeah, something happened to that slide, too. Um, so if you're in a community group or you're gonna, you, know, you plan on being here in the fall, I want to encourage you to be reading through the book of Acts. I know our community group has read it through a couple of times as we look to launch into that book. We're going to do verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's what we like to do here, keeping things in context and, and bringing out you know, relevance and, and truth and, and ways to respond to the truth of God and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So we're going to be doing that in the fall. So we're wrapping up today a series called, nope, that's next week. Um, next week we're finishing up, but today we're asking the question about yeah, something's really wrong with these slides, Bob. I don't know if this was... This must be last week's slide, Rick. Can you pull up this week's? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, come sinners. Okay. Um, so this week, we're, uh, we're sorry about this, but uh, it happens. Roll with the punches. But anyway, so we're looking at questions... That was sent to us. The first question we looked at was, what is blasphemy? You had a question. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And what does it mean that uh, when John talks about the sin that leads to death? That was the first question we looked at. You can go online and check it out. The second question was, what does it mean to really trust God? And we looked at Proverbs chapter 3. The third question is, why is there so much suffering? And we looked at the sovereignty of God and the suffering of man in Job chapter 1 and 2. That was the third question. The fourth question Pastor Nathan dealt with was, what does the Bible have to say about New Testament tithing? It was funny, I was away last weekend at another church um, uh, visiting there, and one of the guys that was at the, uh, the church was talking about a series that his pastor was going through, something similar to this. And we connected and we started talking about, I was like, out of the eight questions that you asked, six of them were the same questions that the other church asked. I thought that was pretty cool. And number four was, what does the New Testament say about tithing? The fifth question was, what is, it, what is eternal security in the preservation of the saints? Uh, last week, Ricky did a bang-up job talking about heaven. It was great to know that we will not be, you know, fat, bloated babies, you know, along the clouds playing harps in our diapers. That's not what it's going to look like. That is not what heaven looks like. Maybe that's what hell looks like, but not heaven. That, so he did a great job with that. And today we're going to look at a hot, a hot topic called election and predestination. Yay for me. No, actually, I, I'm going to enjoy this. Uh, we're going to be here a little while, so settle down. If you've got to use the bathroom, go ahead, go use it now. So we're going to be looking at election predestination. Next week, we're finishing up the series, and we're going to be looking at a series or, or a question that I kind of wrapped up to make it easy for everyone to wrap their head around, and that's called sanctified missionary. So in other words, how do we be set apart for God and yet live as a missionary in our culture. Because what happens with the two extremes that could happen is, one, we disconnect, we, we escape culture, we don't want to talk with people, we don't want to love people, because they're the sinners over there. And the other extreme is we jump right in and swim with the tide, and we're not different than the people around us, and we call ourselves Christians. So what does it look like to engage the culture without emulating the culture, without escaping the culture, but living in the culture, engaging people for the gospel? Of Jesus Christ. You know, is it okay to have tattoos? Is it okay to have a beer? Is it okay to, to get earrings and piercings? We're going to talk about some of that stuff, which I believe a lot has to do with our cultural setting. So that's next week. We'll wrap it up. But this week we get to deal with election and predestination. And let me just say right up front, the topics that we are dealing with, eternal security, the preservation of the saints, election and predestination, are not easy topics to grasp. They're not very easy to wrap your head around. It takes a lot of scripture reading, a lot of praying, a lot of working through works of other people and, and looking at scripture and, and, and understanding the deeper things of God. 
Okay, I say that not to say that you can't do that, because I've done a lot of study in this topic, and if I could do it, everyone in this room could do it, I promise you. Um, but what I'm saying is, this may spark some things in your heart and in your mind. It did for me when I first started studying, to make me, or, or to, to drive me deeper into the Scripture, to drive me deeper into prayer, to drive me deeper into the things of God that have been written over the centuries, and try to figure some things out. One sermon is not going to do it. So if it sparks your interest and you want to learn some of these deeper understandings of God, text me, call me, uh, you know, I'll give you some stuff to read on both sides of the fence if you'd like, you know, whatever. And I want to help you. The pastors here want to help you through some of this stuff. It's not that easy to grasp. And the question that was sent in with this whole trying to understand this election and predestination had to do with what does it mean when the Bible talks about the election of the saints? And then another question was sent in that said, Explain to me Romans 9, which is exactly election and predestination. So combining the couple of questions together, we just said we're going to preach on election and predestination. And then what we'll do is we'll look at some historical backgrounds and then wind up in Romans 9. That's where we will wind up in about two hours. So you can turn there now and uh, we'll talk about election and predestination. Okay? Number one, I want you to understand this, just as an introduction to the introduction. There's no way of getting around it. I talk to people about election and predestination. I don't want to talk about that. You know, and, and it's like, you know, it makes believe that it doesn't exist in the Bible. It does. It's deeply rooted in the history of God's redemption, election and predestination. It goes back to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis that God chose Abraham and said, I want you to go. God chose Israel to be a people for his special privileges and services. And some people don't want to talk about it. Maybe you're here today and you're like, oh, here we go. Because you've seen churches split. You've seen families broken. You've seen relationships end because of this topic. Okay? That's not our intention. Okay? That's not our intention. We'll talk about that a little bit more. There are two camps. All right? Two camps when he talks about election and predestination. Okay? Two camps. Two major camps. One is called the Arminian view. The other one's called a Reformed view or a Calvinistic view. One was named after James or Jacobus, uh, Arminius, 16th century Dutch Reformed theologian. The other one uh, who had great impact on guys like John Wesley and um, uh, Charles Wesley. And then there's John Calvin, who was a French theologian and pastor during the, the Reformation, who many believe, as I do, is one of the greatest theologians uh, and Bible teachers, you know, other than Paul, maybe, and of course Jesus. So that kind of tips you hat where I'm going with this, right, didn't it? Now, understand, you have the Arminian view and the Calvinistic view, and on both views, just like in your life and in your family, they're crazy people. You know, that person you're like, I'm, I'm related, I don't really want to say. So there are hyper on both sides. And both sides, what they do is they wrap themselves around the flag of their view and they shoot at people. We don't want to do that either. Okay? And, and they call people names. Oh, you're a heretic and, and you don't know what you're talking about. And, and they start throwing darts at people. Okay? We don't want to do that. Both camps, other than the wingnut jobs and crazy people, both camps love Jesus Worship Jesus, serve Jesus, love people, right? And want to see many people come to faith in Jesus. And no matter what side you are on the, at the end of the day, when we get done with all this, and I hope to bring you all to one side, I promise you that, but no matter what side, we ought to love each other. Debate is good, the vision is not good, and this should not divide the church. It will not divide the church, not here at least at King's Chapel. So there are people in here that hold the either side of, of which we'll talk about in a minute. Either view, it's okay. We love you. You are welcome here. Healthy debate is good. The vision is not good. Some doctrine needs to divide churches. This just happens to be not one of them. If you're going to tell me that Jesus isn't God, fully human, fully God, eternally, the Son of God, it's going to split us. But I'm not going to divide over this. Virgin birth, perfect life, atoning work of Jesus. The Bible is authoritative by faith alone, through grace alone. Our salvation, those things divide, but not whether you're a Calvinistic view or you have an Arminian view. This whole debate of Calvinism 
and Arminianism, which has to do with election and predestination, goes way back in the history of the church. To Augustine, even, in the 4th century, who taught that salvation, election, God's choosing of, of individuals onto salvation, his predestination of others, is what is called a, a monergism, mono meaning one, that, that a person comes to faith by the solo work of God alone, that God reaches down to us because the human will, the human heart, the human ability does not possess any inclination toward God. They're, they're doing their own thing and not nowhere have the ability to respond until God gives them a new heart. And then when God regenerates them, opens their heart and mind to see Jesus by the work of the Spirit, then they respond. But it's the work of God. Isaiah chapter 51, 53. Who has believed that He has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So, Augustine, Calvinism, and some other Reformed pastors believe and teach that we are all sinners, we all turned away from God, and therefore we justly deserve death and hell. But God, in His mercy, reaches down, single-handed, and snatches us from hell and, and, and death and grabs us and gives us the ill-deserved gift of grace. He gives us a new heart. This is called single-handed monergism predestination. And predestination means to mark out beforehand. It emphasizes the, the, the foreknowledge and the foreordination of God to do whatever He wants to do. So Wayne Grudem, great uh, theologian, got a great systematic book, describes it this way. He says, election, predestination, election, is an act of God before creation in which He chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen or any foreseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. It's nothing that He saw. It's strictly in His sovereignty and good pleasure that He has chose some. So let me illustrate that for you. The whole world and all the people in it love sin, run to sin, enjoy sin, want nothing to do with God, and they're all perishing, the Bible says, they're in judgment because of their sin. That's where they're going. That's where they're running. And God, in His mercy and grace and love, reaches down and snatches some for Himself to display His love and glory and chooses and elects and predestines those who will come to faith. This is grace. This is justice. That's what they would say. Single-handed predestination. They're getting what they deserve. God lets them go. It's not that God sends them in Himself, but our sin, we're running toward sin, we're running toward hell, and God in His mercy and grace reaches down and snatches someone from the road of destruction. Single-handed, monergistic salvation. The other side, you're getting a class lecture today. It's not always like this, but it is today. The other side is synergism. Two-handed salvation. Where the person is working with God to be saved. Two-handed salvation began with Pelagius in the 390 AD. He had a battle going on with Augustine's doctrine of single-handed predestination. He denies original sin, even though it's taught in Romans 5. He affirmed that all men now have the power not to sin and to live according to God's law apart from any work of the Holy Spirit. He unfortunately was declared a heretic in, um, in Carthage. It was a, it was a council. And just like Augustine and, and Pelagian got into battle over the will, over sovereignty, over election, over predestination, John Calvin and James Arminius got into a battle with each other later on in the, in the 16th century. In fact, John Arminius, which comes Arminian views, and John Calvin never met each other. A lot of people don't even know that. They think they had these battles face-to-face going back and forth. What is election and predestination? Is it double-handed? Is it single-handed? They never met. John Calvin died when James Arminius was only, I think, six or four or six years old. They never met. But their followers continued on their teaching. And after both men are dead, they both, both sides met together and came up with the five points of Calvinism, which you probably heard, but there's also five points of Arminianism. And they battled together at what's called the Canons of Dort. And when they battle together the Calvinist way, and we're going to get into what that means, of election and predestination won, and the Arminians lost, and they cut the guy's head off. I'm not making that up. And that's hard to be like, you really you don't agree with me? I cut your head off? They did that. They, they condemned some people, cut their heads off. I mean, I don't think they're right, but that's a little extreme, I, I would say. 
And since then, there's been this, this battle, this, this debate going on, really since 300 A.D. with Augustine. Okay? So that's kind of the history of election and predestination. Now let me show you, and we'll go through them, the five points of Arminianism and the five points of Calvinism. So if you're taking notes, that's it right there. I put it all out for us to see. Arminians teach, and the important thing of their doctrine about election and predestination, the, the, the number one thing is that man has free will. There is human ability. Although sin has affected man, which I don't know how you could look around and see how, how wicked some of us are, but it never got to the place of total helplessness, that God graciously enables us sinners to respond out of our free will, to repent and believe without making us robots and breaking or, or violating our will. But we have a choice to make. It's called prevenient grace, before grace, that God, in, through the cross, has enabled us and gave us enough of His Spirit that we now have a, like almost like a blank slate that we could say yes to Jesus and no to Jesus. That everyone has this prevenient grace. So when the Gospel is preached and shared, everyone comes to the... I don't know, to the same place because the Spirit is doing the same thing because of this provenient grace. They have the ability to choose and cooperate two-handed salvation and be saved and not perish. Okay? Calvinism thought that man is totally depraved. Total depravity. As a result of sin, as a result of Adam's fall, all humanity, humanity is dead in their trespasses and sins. Man is unable to save himself. He is dead. He is blind. He is deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately wicked and that he cannot respond. His will is not free. He's in bondage to his nature. He will not, he cannot uh, choose good or turn from sin to God. It takes more than just the, na- the, the loose working of the Spirit for us to be regenerated. God needs to give us a new heart because man is unable. See the arguments developing? Number two, Armenians believe in conditional election. It's number two. God's choice of certain individuals onto salvation, the Bible says, before the world began was due to His foreknowledge. And God foresees in the sense that He looks down the hall of time and He sees, you know, Lou responding to that open invitation and, and choosing, inviting Christ into His life And because of that, God elected me. God chose me. God foreordained and predestined me for salvation. Okay? So, this predecision of God to save me or save people was determined by or conditioned upon what I would do. My my will being freed, able to respond. And therefore, the sinner's choosing of Christ, it's not God's choice of the sinner that's the ultimate cause of salvation. It's that two-handed salvation. Calvinism taught unconditional election. That man is unable to respond. Election and predestination are unconditional. They're not based on what we do, what we say, our response, but rest completely and solely in God's own sovereign good pleasure and will. That the foreknowledge has nothing to do with what God saw me do, but something that He placed on me to love me before I was born. And faith and repentance then are the result, not the cause, of God's choice. So my choosing of my salvation is not part of the salvation equation. It's the result of it because God elected me unconditionally. Okay? So you could see two opposite sides. Really, there's a wedge. Number three is the general atonement. Arminians teach that Jesus Christ died for all the sins of the world. And in a general way. And it doesn't become particular. It doesn't really affect anyone. And he didn't really die for anyone particularly until that person chooses and puts his faith in the redeeming work of Christ. And when they choose it and accept it, then the salvation that Christ died on the cross for becomes theirs. Calvinists teach limited atonement. Christ's redeeming work was intended to save only the elect and actually secured salvation back on the cross for those who God preordained and foreordained and predestined and elected before the foundation of the world. 
He, God, determined that Christ should die for those particular people. I hold, just so you know, to a limited, unlimited atonement. That the work of Jesus on the cross was sufficient for the whole world. So I could tell everyone in this room, if you're not a Christian, Jesus died for your sins. 1 John 2, He died for the sins of the whole world. It's sufficient for all, but it is efficacious. It is actually does the saving for those who God has predetermined and elected onto salvation. So, again, we got some, we got the vision. Two more. The Holy Spirit, number four. Armenians believe the Holy Spirit can be effectually resisted. So, there's resistible grace. What that means is, when the Holy Spirit calls you to Jesus, and the invitation goes out in the Spirit of God, and you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you could have said no. That the Spirit of God works equally among everyone, and the choice is really yours. That even though His grace and His mercy and His love and the work of Jesus on the cross is so glorious, that when you finally see it, you could still say no. It's resistible. Calvinists would say, no, 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 no. When God opens the heart and the call of God goes out, He doesn't, he doesn't make you a robot, but He sets your spirit, He sets your will free to respond. And you will. And you will. Those whom God elected and Christ died for will be drawn and it's irresistible. You will not say no. All those who God elected and predestined will come to faith in Jesus. Okay? The Spirit sets us free. We talked about it last week. We talked about uh, two weeks ago. Eternal security. How this holy calling of God does not turn us into robot. God, God's call doesn't violate our will. It liberates it. That's what, that's what Calvinists would say. And finally, which we looked at two weeks ago too, is Arminians believe, because they believe you have a free will, because they believe it's conditioned on your response, because they believe that He died for everyone, not really anyone in particular, because they believe that the Spirit of God can be rejected even though the effectual call is taking place in your life, that you can lose your salvation. That you can walk in faith, you can be born anew, you could have this two-handed salvation, but you can let go. You can let go of the Father's hand and dive into eternity away from Christ. Fall from grace. Calvinists would say, no, no, no. We're totally depraved. We can't respond. We're dead in our sins. We are unconditional predestination. It's got nothing to do with you anyway. Salvation is of the Lord. Christ died for you before the foundations of the world. It's irresistible. When He shows you His Son and your need of salvation, when that Spirit does the work in your life, you're going to fall on your face and you're going to worship God by your own free choice because you're going to see how glorious God is. And four, you're going to go to the end. Because it's a work of God, you're going to persevere. You may, you may fall into sin, you may backslide into sin, you may walk like a dummy for a couple of years, whatever it is, but in the end, you're coming back and you're going to worship Jesus. He's taking you home because He saved you. He will continue with you. Right? First Peter, man, our inheritance is imperishable. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you by God's power. You're guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. So, generally speaking, this is the end of my introduction, I'm sorry. Salvation is accomplished through the combined efforts, that's what Arminians would say, combined efforts working together, God takes initiative, man responds, is the determining factor for their salvation, for their election, for God choosing them. And His provisions become effective only when those out of their free will and choice cooperate with God and receive the free gift of salvation. Foundational to Calvinism is the sovereignty of God and the inability of man or the total, total, uh, um, total depravity. Calvinists, Augustinians, people all in between those years and Calvin until now, hold very tightly to the sovereignty of God that He is absolutely and undisputable, uh, has undisputable authority over all creation. That nothing can lie outside of or be viewed as not being subject to the sovereignty of His will. That He is not only the Creator, He's the upholder, He's the disposer of all events from beginning to end. He's sovereign over everything. We saw that in Job 1 and 2. Isaiah 46, 9 says this, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, God saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. 
Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does all that He pleases. Calvinists, people who are that bent on that camp, will quickly tell you when they talk about sovereignty, we talk about this all the time, that God is sovereign, man is responsible. Hyper-Calvinists, those who deny the responsibility of man, will tell you that's not true. All over Scripture it is true. Whosoever will come. I mean, all over Scripture, Judas was responsible for betraying Jesus, but the Bible says it was done before the foundation. Man is responsible for your decisions, and God is sovereign. How those two things come together, I don't know. But the Bible is clear, crystal clear on that. Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon, how do you reconcile sovereignty of God and responsibility of man? And he says, friends don't need reconciliation. They run parallel. So they would quickly point that out. God in His sovereignty will bend and superintend all actions to, to show and to see that things that He has planned will come to pass. So what does the Scripture say? Are we totally depraved? I mean, that's the question. That's what they're basing on. Are we totally depraved? Or do we have this thing called provenient grace? Now, the word total does not mean that we are completely or absolutely depraved, that man is as, as wicked as he can be. There's much more wicked than we can do. But man is depraved in every part, so that total depravity means that it, it, we're stained. Every, every part of us is stained, is marred, is bent, is broken and corrupted by sin. What that means is that we are not naturally responding to God. We're not naturally seeking after God. We're not uh, naturally able to respond to God. Well, does the Bible say that? Let's see, Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. John 8-34, Jesus says, Everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have sinned and turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And the final analysis, I believe, is in Ephesians chapter 2. Tells us about the human heart, the depravity, the inability to respond. Ephesians 2. And you, he's talking to Christians, what they once were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Who'd you follow? The prince and the power of the air, that's Satan, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, and all in the Greek means all, we all once lived in the passion of our sinful nature, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like everybody else. Now, those are the verses on total depravity. Let me give you the verses on provenient grace. You get it? There are none. Um, so, you see what side I'm on, Okay. They look at Matthew 5.45, for God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's just, that's just saying that God did not wake me up this morning and turn me to powder because of my wickedness yesterday. That's all that means. That God allows me to breathe when I should be in hell. That's what, and He allows everyone in this room to hear the gospel, to be here this morning, even though we're sinners and in rebellion, as, as R.C. Sproul likes to say, we're in cosmic treason toward God. So he's gracious to all of us. That's, that's what that means. And some will say, well, wait a second. What about free will? What about responsibility? I, we are responsible. But what about free will? Well, we don't have free will in the most wide sense. I can't choose to wake up tomorrow morning and be six foot tall. Don't laugh. It's not going to happen. Tall, dark, and handsome. I, that, that ship left. I'm not making that decision. You know, I can't choose to fly like a bird. I can't choose to run like a cheetah. I got a hip going, another one not even well yet. You know what I mean? I'm not running that fast. I'm bound. We all are bound by our human nature. We're not birds. We're not cheetahs. We're not tall if we're short. We're not short if we're tall. 
We're bound by our human nature. And what does the Bible say about our human nature? We're a slave. We're dead. We're a child of wrath. We're, we're by nature a child of wrath. Very one-sided salvation to me. Some will say, well, then God's not sincere when He tells everyone and calls everyone to repent and believe if they can't. They will argue that the Bible says a lot about God not wishing anyone to perish. Doesn't God tell everyone to repent? And that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Doesn't that involve an act of the will? Yeah. I mean, sometimes they ask me, I'm like, yes, it does. It does involve the act of the will. And that is God's will for us. For you, if you're here today, to turn from your sin and trust Jesus. And if you trust Him, all who trust Him will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's true. That's His will. And I'm going to tell you that God does not always get what He wants. Now, but before you take me out and burn me at the stake, hear me out a minute. Is God's will, is it God's will that you go out and sin or not sin? I'll tell you, it's God's will that you don't sin. Are you going to sin when you leave? Everyone say yes. Yes. So we need to understand the difference between God's sovereign will, His decreed will, His superintending and, and, and right and reign to rule the world, even dummies like me, and fulfill His final purposes. That's His decreed will. Then His defined will and His, and his um, desired will. There's a difference in Scripture. And once you get that in your mind... You're able, to, you're able to understand that God's sovereign. Nothing gets outside His control. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the creator. And God has a defined will, like don't cheat, don't steal, don't sin. We violate that all the time. And then God has a desired will. So when it says, you know, that none should perish, that it's the desire that all come to repentance, it won't happen. But that's God's will. That's God's desire for His creation that He loves. First Timothy 2 says, It is good, it is pleasing in the sight of God and Savior who desires all people to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter writes to the scattered church in 1 Peter, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, everyone in this room, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter's not talking about his sovereign will. He's talking about his will of desire. That's the heart of God. Hear me. He loves everyone in this room. The heart of God is that we would all turn from sin, trust in Jesus, live in the redeemed heaven and earth with our new glorified bodies and not go to hell. That's not what God wants for you. If you have children or you've been a kid... Your parents telling you, don't do that. Turn from that. My mom told me, I can't tell you all the things that she told me not to do. And I was like, I'm doing it. I got in all kinds of trouble because of that. She knew she was, you know, speaking to the wind. I wasn't going to listen. I was determined to do what I wanted to do, as wrong as it was. But that didn't change my mother's love for me. Her plea, her desires didn't change. She didn't say, all right, you're not going to listen to me, so you know what? The, the heck with you. She loved me anyway. So when God pleads with you, and you're determined to do your own thing, it doesn't change the heart of God. That He loves you. The Bible says in Ezekiel, as I live, the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn. That's the heart of God. He knows, he knows that we're bent and running away from Him. That doesn't change His plea as a parent. Tells a child not to do those things, knowing that the child is going to go ahead and do it anyway. Someone say, well, then if God could save everyone, why doesn't He? I don't know. But when Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, you'll see He's walking through this gate uh, in Jerusalem by this pool, and there was all these lame people and, and, and on mats and unable to walk, and He doesn't heal everybody. I don't know the sovereign good pleasure of God. I'm not going to sit up here and say that I do. But I will say this. He's not obligated as if he has to do what almighty man tells him to do. Right? I mean, it's a gift. It's grace. No one, as I said before, on their way, God snatches. No one who ends up in eternal damnation away from God is going to be able to look at God and say, you're unjust, because that's justice. This is grace. 
So we, we're not able to, to we're, not, we're not in a place to talk back to God, which we'll look at in a minute. Ephesians chapter 1, let me read this verse, just listen. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, not hate, in love, He predestined us for adoptions. He predestined before the foundation of the world, chose us, loved us, foreknew us, predestined us for adoption, that's being a child, that's salvation, as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. It's not about what we do. The riches of His grace lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. According to the purpose he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of uh, time to unite all things to himself, having predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things out according to the counsel of his will. Very one-handed salvation right there. Predestination from eternity past God elects us to salvation, allowing other people to, to go and get what they want. That's called reprobation. Grace, justice. Turn to Romans 9 where we'll end up. And we're just going to go through this quickly. I, I appreciate your time on this. I'm not going to apologize for the deep things, but it's not always getting into it like this as we do expository preaching. But you asked, we're, 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 going, to sh- we're going to share the truth. Romans chapter 9. Turn there with me. Classic verse of predestination and election. Chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Paul is responding to the Romans and answering the question that even though Christ came through the lineage and the promise of the Jews, yet they did not respond. He says it's not because the Word of God has failed. God did not fail. Verse 6, right? For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, the natural descendants, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. He's talking about the promise given to Abraham. Okay, he's talking about the promise given to Abraham. Not everybody who is of natural descendant of Abraham, but it's, it's, he's tracing, which we looked at in Genesis, this promise that was given in Genesis 3.15, then to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and onward, okay, until Jesus comes in the New Testament. That's what he's saying, verse 10. And not only so with Abraham, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, that's Abraham's son. Now, how many sons did Abraham have? Okay, so there was Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman, and there is Sarah, the son of the promise. He's saying right here that Rebekah was the lineage of the promise and her father was Isaac. Her husband was Isaac. Verse 11, though they were not yet born, he's speaking about Isaac's children, his two sons, follow that, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac has two sons, lineage of the promise, Okay, Isaac had two sons. He says, though they were not yet born, had nothing, uh, done nothing either good or bad. Where's the promise going, Paul? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told by God, the older will serve the younger. Esau, the older, will serve Jacob. Again, we studied that last year. And Paul emphasizes This was done before the children were born. And for what reason did he say before anything was done, before they were born, they were told this. It says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, I'm not sure how do you get around that passage. He's saying before anything was done, before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, I am choosing and I am electing to use and to work through Isaac, excuse me, to work through Jacob and not Esau. Very one-handed, very unconditional. God's purpose in election will stand infallibly. 
The choice of Jacob on Esau had nothing to do. You guys remember the stories? I mean, Esau was like, I'll give up everything I have for some food. Sounds like me. You can have it. Give me the bowl. He was, he was just instant pleasure. Jacob was a trickster. He was a con man. He was a manipulator. He was a mama's boy. It's not like God said, you know what? You're such a good kid. You're, you're, you're a good little boy. I think I'll work through you. Because you seem to be, by your own free choice, a really nice guy. That's not what happened. They both got their issues. Instead, verse 11 says, not because of works, but because of Him, God, who calls. The basis is always found in the calling of God. We saw that in, uh, in 2 Timothy. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the effectual call. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. They can't come unless the Father draws them. Timothy is told by Paul. Listen to this verse. Paul, he says to Timothy, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of your works, but because of His, God's, own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That's pretty clear. Verse 13, it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a tough verse right there. The word hate, miseo in the Greek, when it's used in contrast to love, doesn't take on the literal meaning of hatred, but shows a lesser degree. Do you remember the story? Jesus has his disciples together and he says, anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, hate his mother, his wife, his children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate and love, contrast. He's not saying go home and hate your family. It doesn't take on that in, in, the, in the nuance of the day. He's saying very, very clearly that it's a lesser degree. Your love for Jesus should be so strong and paramount and first place that it almost looks like hating to everybody else. That's how much love we should have toward God, not literally. So many people have interpreted this passage saying, you know what, God's capricious, He's mean, He's like, you know, Jacob, I love you, you I hate, get away from me. That's, that's not what it means. What it means is that God chose to use Isaac by his own sovereign good pleasure and not, excuse me, Jacob and not Esau. Some people think he's talking about nations because Esau became the nation of the Edomites and uh, Jacob became, of course, Israel. And in Malachi 1, which is Paul is referencing here, it's talking about the two nations that were fighting each other. So whether it's nations or whether it's individual, I think what, the, what Paul's trying to say is we can't point fingers. We can't point fingers. Jacob and, and Esau don't have the right to say, you had no right to do that. You should bless me. You shouldn't bless me. Why would you bless him? What? That's, that's what he's saying. God chose in his divine sovereignty to love and bless individuals and nations according to his own choice and sovereign will. Some will say, well, that's not right. I hear that too. Well, that's not right of God to do that. Well, Paul answered that, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That ain't right. That's unjust. By no means. Verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will. There's, there's that word again. There's that one-handed salvation. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raise you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. And some would say, well, wait a minute. Pharaoh hardened his heart first. That's why God hardened his heart. And some would say, no, 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 no. No, no, no. God hardened his heart first and Pharaoh then hardened his heart. One town, you know, you look at the Bible, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, written by an Arminian. And in other places it says God hardened his heart. Sounds like it's written by a Calvinist. But you know what? Both are true. And, and arguing who did what first misses the point. It was not like Pharaoh was this great, sweet, lovable teddy bear guy who loved the Israelites and was just wanted to help them in any way he can. Would you agree? He hated them. He beat them. He had them in slavery. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. All of human nature, it says, is wicked and broken and sinful. His heart was totally depraved too. So God didn't come along and say, Pharaoh, you know what? You are blessing my people. You're such a good guy. I'm tired of it. So I'm just going to turn you into a mean, despicable, angry dude. That's not what happened. 
The issue isn't who hardened his heart, because we know God did, we know Pharaoh did. The issue is how and why. By what means? I'm going to tell you what it means. I believe that God hardens the heart by removing his soft hand. Let's just get our own way. He came to Pharaoh how many times through Moses? How many plagues? Okay. Stop! Repent! Let my people go! Uh uh-uh. uh. One plague. Ten times. That's mercy. That's compassion. How many times have you been here at King's Chapel? Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus. Every time you hear it, that's mercy. That's compassion. That's the love of God. That's the call of the gospel. Pharaoh wasn't having it. God could have crushed Pharaoh the minute he stepped out on his porch, but yet he responded by calling him to repentance. Another opportunity. But he didn't listen. God's not mean-spirited, but he certainly doesn't have to come before and answer to Almighty Man. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If he does whatever he wants, why does he find fault in us? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Romans 9.22 What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Alright, the concepts, Old Testament, the, the, the potter molding the clay, the clay cannot speak back to the potter and say, what are you doing? We have a right to respond. Pharaoh, you may think you are king over the nations, but you're not king over the world. So even though you think you're God and that he should, somehow God should answer to you and that God should somehow now say, you know what, I don't like the way you're doing things. Uh, Pharaoh say to God, I don't like the way you're doing things and, and, and kind of hold him in contempt. God's saying, who are you, old man? That's not a cop-out. Some people use that as a cop-out. I just look at it and say, Paul's teaching humility. We're not God. One of the church fathers, old church fathers said this, it is a great indignity and presumption for a man to answer back to God. The unjust to the just, the evil to the good, the imperfect to the perfect, the weak to the strong, the corruptible to the incorruptible, the mortal to the immortal, the servant of the Lord, the creature to the creator. Friends, the bottom line is this. Either Satan is in charge and he gives out salvation to whomever he wants, which would be nobody. Man's in charge, his sin nature and his bondage to sin and he's got to respond out of deadness or God chooses and elects and saves some unto himself. That's really the bottom line. And God in love, the Bible says, now listen carefully, give me a couple more minutes. God in love, the Bible says, came into the history in the person of Jesus Christ. He would live on this earth in humility, be tempted in every way, like us, yet without sin. He would go to the cross. He would substitute Himself in our place for our sins. And this good God and Savior, Jesus Christ, would die and endure the penalty and punishment for our sins. And He would rise and He would give a gift of salvation to those who respond. And although He knows none of us would respond because we're dead in our sin, He pursues us anyway. He loves us anyway. He desires us anyway. He chooses us anyway. He helps us to yield to Him anyway. And He invites us to come to that offer of the Gospel. God in love elects and predestines. God in just gives people what they want and what they desire. I will tell you, from Scripture, Jesus died for your sins. It is God's will. It is God's desire that you repent from your sin and turn and trust Jesus. All right, three quick questions. I've got to hit these. And then we'll close. People say this all the time, so I have to hit it. People say all the time, if God has chosen some to eternal life and that those He chooses, why should I evangelize? Why should I share the gospel if he has predestined the election before the foundation of the world? I've got to tell you, I never understood that question. I still don't really. Because I never thought that way before. But some people get, that's a stumbling block for them. And I'll tell you, there's three different ways to look at this and what's from Scripture. Number one, we evangelize because we're obeying God. Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples, preach the gospel, baptize, teach them, you know, until I'm with you, until uh, the end of the age. God says, go and share the gospel with everyone. 
We don't get to pick and choose because, you know what, that doesn't make sense. I'm not really sure. You know, how does that all work out? Maybe, you know, it's obedience. It's obedience. We obey regardless of whether we fully understand. Moses told uh, the people in Deuteronomy the secret things of the Lord. There are secret things of the Lord. The elect, we don't know, but the things that are revealed to us our children, God's children, that we ought to walk in them. We ought to do them and fulfill His law. The things that God is pleased to show us, we ought to do. At obedience, we ought to respond. And, 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 and let me tell you, God ordained, decreed the method and, not just the method, but the means on how someone would come to faith. It's through the gospel. Romans 10 says that we ought to preach the gospel, that people won't respond until they hear the gospel. God declared that we ought to share the gospel with everyone. All people, all nations, all tongues, all tribes. Charles Spurgeon said, if all the elect had a white stripe on their back, I would quit preaching and begin lifting shirt tails. God has not put an invisible mark. So how are we to treat people? All the same. Declaring, sharing, demonstrating the gospel and calling them, the whole world, to Jesus. Which brings me to my second point. Not only are we ought to be obedient, but... It, it's out of exuberance. Folks, evangelism is a way in which we worship, which we praise, which we bring glory to God. The God who has unconditionally elected someone to salvation. We love to preach the gospel and all the good news of Jesus. It's great joy to recount the old, old stories and the love of Jesus thrills us and we praise and worship Him in declaring the gospel. If my chief duty is to glorify God and... I see that God gets most glory when Jesus Christ is proclaimed. People's sins are forgiven. They love and treasure Jesus and the supremacy of God. There should be joy. There should be exuberance. Second Timothy 2, Remember Jesus Christ, Paul said, risen from the dead, offspring of David, preached in the gospel, which I am suffering bound in chains. The word of God is not bound, though, he says. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The motivation is the love of God and the love of people. Those who love God will joyfully obey His commission on evangelism and make disciples. Those who love their neighbors want nothing more to see their family, friends, neighbors, co-workers be a Christian. It's about joining God on His mission, spreading the glory and the supremacy and the, and, and the worship of Jesus in all nations. And I will say this, and we'll move on to the last one. If loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus, preaching Jesus, seeing people you know, have their sins forgiven by Jesus, change lives, marriage heals, if that doesn't excite you, the issue isn't what side of the camp you're on, Calvinism or Arminianism. The issue is your heart. I don't care what side you're on. The issue is your heart. You're not excited about the things that God's excited. The angels rejoice. The angels long to look onto. It's a heart issue. And finally, obedience, exuberance, and confidence. Believing that God is sovereign and has a plan, and there are people that He has brought and will bring into salvation, and He gets to use you and me and the church in sharing the gospel and the good news of Jesus brings confidence to the soul. Because it's not about my trickery. It's not about my words. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it well. I'm not saying we shouldn't study it well. I'm not saying we'll talk about that next week, engaging the culture. I'm saying when the bottom line is, it's between that person and God. I'm just a mailman delivering the mail. That's all I'm doing. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas, if you've been reading Acts, we're in Antioch in Syria. They're getting ready for their first missionary journey. And the Holy Spirit told the church in Antioch, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work I'm calling to. And that church became the outpost of all kinds of missionary ex, uh, uh, exertions and, and, and proclamation. They fasted and they prayed. And then when Paul went to Antioch in Pisidia, a different place, came to the Jews and preached the gospel, they kind of, some believed, but then they got angry. The Bible says that when Paul turned to the Gentiles and told them that the gospel was for them too, this is what it says. When the Gentiles heard this, they, became, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We proclaim the gospel with confidence, looking forward to the fruit of our work and the glory of Jesus. 
So that in Revelation, when it says there's a great multitude of people, no number would, could be known. All nations, all tribes, people, and language before the throne, crying out, salvation belongs to our God. We get to participate in that with confidence that God's going to do what God has called them to do. We don't preach predestination here. I know that may sound strange. I just spent an hour. But we aren't to preach predestination. We are to preach Christ crucified and risen the gospel. That's our job. The invitation to believe is extended to everyone. The world's greatest evangelist had Calvinistic bents. David Brainerd, George Whitfield, the Great Awakening, thousands of people came to faith. William Carey, who's a father of modern missions, wrote expect great things, attempt great things. Great influence in India. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, Judson, missionary to Burma. All these people had confidence because of God working in them, calling some, the Spirit of God's going to do work, and God's going to get the glory. And finally, Paul. As the band comes up, let me just tell you about Paul. Just give me one more minute, folks. Band, come on up. Think about, people say that Paul was one of the, one of the greatest theologians that taught predestination and election. Romans 9, or other passages in Ephesians 1, was written by Paul. And some say, you know what, with the most fervency, Paul taught election and predestination. Think for a minute. Who would be the one that would really understand that he had to be awakened in order to receive Christ, that he had to be stopped on the road, that he had to be snatched, would be Paul. He hated Christians. He murdered Christians. He wanted nothing to do with Christians. He went around, you know, as a modern-day uh, radical Islam, murdering and killing believers. And yet God came to him, Jesus, and smacked him off his horse. That's predestination right there. And, and, and not only blinded him, but gave him a new heart to love Jesus, to worship Jesus, to write all kinds of books in the Bible. And let me, let me tell you this too. If Paul believed and taught, which I think he did, election and predestination, before the foundation of the world, God chose some for himself, single-handled salvation. If he believed that we shouldn't evangelize, he's a strong, strange dude. He got beaten, kicked, rocks busted upside the head, dragged out for dead, got back up and went back in. Oh no, the elect will just come. Not according to Paul. He understood the obedience to the call. He understood the joy of sharing in the gospel and seeing God work through him for his glory and praise. He understood the confidence. I'm going back in. They could beat me some more. But there's some in there that God has, has called me to preach the gospel and God's going to save. And you know what? I'm going to participate in that. Paul's the great evangelist. So I want to encourage you today. Preach the gospel. Live your life loving people, everyone. Sharing the gospel with everyone. Let God be God and let Him worry about all the other stuff. Teach, preach with confidence and joy and fervency. Sharing your faith. Loving people both in word and in deed. Together sharing the gospel. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't be like Pharaoh, harden your heart. Don't be like Pharaoh and harden your heart. Don't be stubborn. Don't be self-righteous. What awaits you is judgment, hell, death, and wrath. Come and respond to the gospel. Love Jesus. Repent of your sin. Ask Jesus into your heart, knowing He died on the cross for your sins. He was buried in the ground. Three days later, He rose from the grave. And by turning from your sin and trusting in Him, laying yourself down at Him and just saying, I'm a sinner. I need, I need salvation. Jesus, the gospel died, rose for my justification. If you've never responded to the gospel, respond just by bowing your head and saying, come into my life, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I'm a sinner and I need you. And respond to the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, taking your penalty and wrath, died and rose again so that you can have forgiveness of your sins. And if you're a Christian here today, we would call you to respond that what God has done in your life you are on the road to hell, death, and destruction. And if not for the grace of God, if not for the one hand snatching you from the fiery pit of hell, we'd all wind up in hell. But God in His mercy and grace loved us in Him, the Beloved. So let us all respond in worship, in trust, in adoration, yielding our life to the true King who came and died and rose again so that we can have forgiveness, mercy, compassion, and love in the Gospel. Let us pray. Father, we want to glorify You. We want to worship You. We want the things that You have declared and maybe hidden from us even to be 
yours alone. We're not going to claim anything. You've given us our orders. You've loved us even though we ran from You. You pursued us. You saved us. And now You sent us back into the world. Not to hold on to this, but to share it with everyone. So Lord, we pray that You would restore or at least renew our hearts so that we can be excited about sharing our faith, that we can be obedient to the call, that we can have joy in the the midst of, of our lives. And Father, that we can be confident that you love people, that you're pursuing people. Lord, that you want them and you desire them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to be that mouthpiece for your glory, our joy. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.